So let's go to Romans chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at the remainder of chapter 13, beginning in verse 8, and in your bulletin there is a, an outline for this morning's message. The Apostle Paul writes, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. And today's message is entitled, Just That. How do we clothe ourselves in Christ? so that we can love others just as Christ has loved us. And that's kind of the theme for today. Now just to set the context as we move into this message, uh, you recall in chapters 1 through 11, uh, Paul spent 11 chapters talking about how we enter into a relationship with our Creator through His Son, Jesus Christ. He talked about how we were far from God, we were enemies of God, we were uh, at, at odds with God, but God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, God demonstrated that love by sending Christ into the world to die in our place so that through him we might have a relationship with God. Now, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul is taking what he said theologically, and he says, now, here's the practical application as to how you and I can love others in the same way that God has loved us. And this is really what Paul is unpacking in these verses uh, before us. And so God loves us so we can love others. God forgave us so that we can forgive others. God um, brought into us this relationship, and he, he flows through us in the power in the person of the Holy Spirit so that we can love others in the same way that God has loved us. And back in chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul says there are basically two options that we have in life. We are either living our lives, being conformed to the pattern of this world, or we're going to live our lives being transformed by the renewing of our mind and thus living a life that is different than it was prior to our entering into this relationship with Jesus. So the kind of love Paul's going to talk about is a love we cannot manufacture on our own. It is a love of God, agape love, unconditional love, that you and I have no capacity to manufacture. It is the fruit of the Spirit, and therefore it is the fruit of the Spirit who enables us, the power of the Holy Spirit, to live lives that are absolutely transformed by the Word of God, thus the renewing of our minds, so that we can love the world just as God loved us. So he is contrasting here a life of selfishness as opposed to a life of love. Because selfishness is the way that we entered into the world. That is the pattern of the world. That's the, that, that is our birth defect that we entered into the realm of humanity with. 
And so, what you know, selfishness is about um, living exclusively for yourself, right? It's all about your own satisfaction. Now, here's what I know. Um, I have two daughters, and we have three grandchildren, and you have children. Many of you are grandchildren. Here, here's what I know is that when my kids were born, I had to teach them how to walk. I had to teach them how to use a fork and a spoon. I had to teach them how to, you know, kind of... Um, speak the human language in a way that is understandable other than, you know, how, how children, babies do. But one of the things I did not ever teach or have to teach my children is how to be selfish. Amen? How many of you got selfish kids? Of course they're selfish because that is their default that they were born with. We are all born into the world naturally selfish. This is what Paul refers to as the flesh. All right, it's life without God. It's life apart from God. And so one of the roles and responsibilities of a parent is that we are supposed to help our children to grow up and teach them how to be responsible adults and how to responsibly interact with other people. So it's just not all about you and it's not just all about your wants and your desires, but you take into consideration the, the wants and the desires of those around you. And if we fail to do that as parents, then our children grow up to be very selfish individuals. And so what happens then, and you get into the teenage years, we become more selfish. I was more and more embedded into myself and what I wanted, I desired as a teenager. And then you get into your 20-somethings, and it grows a little bit worse. And now you're making all your own decisions, right? I can decide what I want to eat, what I want to drive, where I want to go, what I want to do. If I want to sleep in until 12 o'clock, I'm going to sleep in until 12 o'clock. I don't have any other responsibilities. And then when you get into your 30s and you're kind of like maxed out into this level of selfishness, then it dawns on us, you know what? I think the way I could be less selfish is get married. Now we've got two selfish individuals, big eyes, who've come together collectively in a relationship, both of which are thinking to themselves, what can I do to get this person to meet my needs? Thank you, Jim. Um, I have counseling um, availability next week. <laughs> so if that weren't bad enough, now we're struggling as, as, you know, as new married couples. I mean, if you've been married for more than 15 days, you know it's like, wow, I, who did I marry? Like, who is this person? I didn't, I didn't sign up for all this that I got all the baggage they brought into this relationship. And then as a couple, we have like uh, our, our brains are set aside for a moment and we think, you know what, what would really fix our broken relationship? Let's have a baby. That will do it. And so you have a child and the child never sleeps and they just demand from you and demand from you. You know, our, our youngest daughter has uh, our grandson, Silas. Silas is four years old. Silas has yet to sleep through the night. He's up multiple times during the night, which creates all kinds of problems and difficulties and situations. And so here we are, and, you know, children come along, and, and they just bring a whole host of other problems. I mean, yes, we love them, and, and we, we adore them, but, I mean, they just do things the, at the most impromptu times. I mean, you, you, you get all, your kids all together and rounded up, and you finally get them dressed in bed and ready to go off to church, and somebody has a poop explosion, and it's up their back and then in their hair, and you got to... You know, take all their clothes off, and you're carrying them off into the bathtub, and you set them down. 
I mean, this is just what goes on. And now we're trying to think, of how, how can I be loving in this situation? Because when that happens, tensions are high. You know, emotions are off, you know, off the roof. I mean, they're just escalating. And, you know, husbands and wife, can, the tension between the two of them, and then you start arguing, and you argue all the way to church, and you get here, and it's just like, whoa, whoa. What do we do? What do we do when we're just bent towards selfishness, but yet then the Bible confronts us with this issue of loving even the selfish, even the unlovable, even those we don't like, even, as Jesus said, our enemies. How do we do that? How do we bridge that gap as to what uh, Paul is talking about here? Because, listen, I, I, I firmly believe that nothing changes until you have been served by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus, you enter into that relationship and he gives you a new heart and he gives you a new nature and you experience firsthand the love and the grace and the mercy of God. You thought in your mind, God can't forgive me. I've done too much. There's too much water under the bridge. There's not enough grace to cover all of that. And God comes along and says, you cannot exhaust my grace. There's more grace than what you would ever need in your lifetime. And therefore, I'm, I'm serving you by serving up my son, Jesus Christ, so that through him, you can have this relationship and this new nature. You can be justified in my eyes, just as you've never sinned. And I'm going to dwell you with my Holy Spirit. And I'm going to empower you to love in a way that you have never been able to love before. And so... God does this transformative work, and so Paul says, listen, let's talk about how we can live in love versus selfishness. Let's talk about how we can walk in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. And so I'm going to talk about the debt of love, the motive of love, and the power of love in these verses. So let's start with the debt of love. He said in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. And so what is Paul talking about here? Now, oftentimes people will pull this verse out and they would use it as a proof text and say, well, see, the Bible teaches that we're not allowed to borrow any money. We should never be in debt. And uh, therefore, you should have to pay cash for everything. That is not what this verse is saying. And that if you look at it in the proper context in which Paul is addressing here. Now, if you take it out of context, you can make that argument. Even Jesus talked about the borrower and the lender. Uh, God does not anywhere in Scripture say that there's no way that you can ever go into debt for anything. Most of us went into debt for what? Our houses. We have a mortgage to pay. Or some of you bought a car. You had to go into debt. You got a payment book. And there's other debt indebtedness that we have. What the Bible would teach us and what Paul teaches us in this context, if you move back up in verse 7, it says, give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And what Paul is saying there is simply this. If you owe somebody something, then pay them back. Give them what is owed to them. And he says to everyone, there is owed honor. There's owed respect. I I, I don't know about you, but I have to pay taxes. I'm considered self-employed by the IRS. I have to pay quarterly taxes. I write out checks to, you know, to federal government and state and local and you know, school tax, all of that stuff. And so what Paul would say, every time you're writing that check, instead of like 
begrudgingly writing it, like, uh, how about make that, let that be a payment of love towards those whom you are repaying. Let that be a statement of, of love. And so, again, we, sometimes we, we borrow for things that we purchase, uh, what we acquire in life. And again, there's, no, uh, there's nothing warning against that. What the Bible would say in the context of Scripture when it comes to finances is that you always want to keep and maintain financial margin. The greater the margin, the less stress in your life. In other words, if you acquire so much debt that you're stressed out every month to make those minimum payments, that would be a very unwise thing to do. So the Scripture does give us wisdom in handling our finances. If you create financial margin, then you don't have stress. If you've got stress in your finances, it's with you 24-7. You can't get away from it. So the Bible says, let's keep financial margin as much as possible. I know there are seasons in your life where that's more applicable than others, but we need to keep that in mind as we are uh, plunging ourselves into debt. But here's the point is that not all debt is bad. Some debt is, is, is okay. If you owe anyone anything, he says what? Let no debt remaining outstanding except, except what? The continuing debt of love to one another. Now, here's the thing about debt. If I have a mortgage, I know that if, let's say, you financed your house for 15 years, at the end of the 15 years, I've, I signed that final check, and I'm free and clear there's a finality to that indebtedness. If I purchase a car, I don't know how long you finance it for, three years, four years, five years, uh, then you get that payment book and you make that final payment. There is a finality to that debt you owe. What Paul is saying is simply this. There is no finality to the debt of love. In other words, I can never get to a point in my life where I say, you know what, uh, the debt of love is paid. Uh, it's okay now. I'm done. I can't say to my wife, hey, babe, you know, uh, we've been married for, you know, X number of years. I've paid my debt of love to you. Therefore, it's all paid. It's all done. It's, it's all over with. I just get to treat you however I want to. So Paul is challenging us in every single aspect and relationship of our lives that we bring to the table this debt of love. God has loved me. He loved me long before I ever loved him. And therefore, now that I've experienced the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ, I am indebted to God for his love for me, a debt that I could never pay that was paid through the love of Jesus Christ. And now, as I try to relate to people horizontally out of this vertical relationship with my Savior, I'm bringing love to the table, and I can never stop bringing love to the table because that debt can never be paid. It never comes to a conclusion. It never comes to a finality. I never get to say to a person, I'm going to tell you what, you've used up your quota of love with me. We're done. I ain't loving you anymore. I'm just going to tell you what I think and let the you know, chips fall where they may. There is no finality to that kind of love and so he says the, the debt of love will never be paid. Again, in the Greek language, there are multiple words for love because we use love interchangeably as human beings, right? I love pizza, I love my dog, I love my wife. Uh, you know, okay, is that all of equal value? Or So in the, in the Greek language, it's very, very um, precise. So phileo is like friendship love. Eros is romantic love. Storge is like uh, security or belonging 
but he's using agape love, this unconditional love that we're bringing to the table in every single relationship we have, whether that person is a believer or that person is an unbeliever. And when we get to the power of love, we're going to see why that's so important, because God works powerfully through love. And it is true that love is the only thing that you have as an ongoing debt to pay the people around you. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 17 says that we're to honor others. And Paul said we're to honor, we're to respect. So every time I honor you, every time I respect you and love you in honor, by honoring and respecting, I'm making a payment of love. And it's something that never comes to an end. And so with regard to the authorities over us, as we talked about last week, the same thing is true in the relationships that we have with one another. So, um, yeah, I, I can't say. Honor doesn't say, well, I'll honor you till 11 o'clock, but after that, you're done. I love you till 10, but then you're, you're history. So Paul's saying we're bringing this to the table, and he, he's saying we're to honor and love people. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, he says that we are to do everything in love, all that you do. I've got to love the IRS people, and I've got to love politicians, and I've got to love, you know, the things that, that I might struggle with in, in a person's life and, and in their lifestyle. And so I, I bring love to the table, and Jesus, again, just loved us in such a way. Have you... So that love, Paul says, is to be in the forefront of our minds. For example, let's say I owe you 20 bucks, okay? Uh, I probably owe Phil $20. I lost a bet to him for 49ers beating the Cowboys. I, let's just say that, you know. So let's say time goes by, and I haven't paid him back, right? Let's say a month or two goes by, and I see Phil in the, in the grocery store, and I'm like, what, what comes to my mind? I owe him $20, but I don't have $20 in my pocket. So what am I going to do? I'm going to avoid him, right? I don't have a conversation with him because I know I owe him $20. I don't have $20 paying back, so I will avoid him. So I try to avoid him. I come around the corner, and all of a sudden, there he is standing face-to-face with me. And he say, hey, Greg, how are you doing? How, how's your wife? How's the kids, the grandkids? And he's talking along, but all I'm thinking about is, I owe this dude $20. I don't have $20 to give him, and therefore, I'm thinking that he's thinking you owe me $20, and you ought to pay me, right? It's at the forefront of my mind, but not necessarily at the forefront of his mind. So what Paul would challenge us, uh, us with, this debt of love, is that we would always keep at the forefront of our mind that in every single relationship, in every single conversation we have with people, in every single interaction we have with others, we ought to be thinking in terms, what is the most loving thing I can say? What's the most loving thing I could do? What's the most loving way I could interact with this individual, regardless of who they are? That's where God, God is challenging us. And so he says, love then is what? The fulfillment of the law. And when we think about the law, we think the we think, uh, well, you know, law is negative, love is positive, law is bad, uh, because it's so negative, love is good. But that's not the way Paul processes it. You know, he lists some of the commands here, and so I want you to catch this. He's listing some of the Ten Commandments. So here's what Paul is trying to lay out for us. In the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments have to do with our vertical relationship with God. 
the last six commandments, you know, honor your father and mother, don't covet, don't steal, you know, don't do these things, uh, don't murder, has to do with our horizontal relationships. And Paul is simply reminding us that when we love others as Christ has loved us, when we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us, when we treat others as Christ has treated us, we are thus fulfilling the law. We are keeping the law. And, and so Jesus, when he was confronted about the law, the, the uh, scribes and Pharisees said, Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Vertical relationship. And then he went on to say, And love your neighbor as yourself. Horizontal relationship. And what Jesus was reminding us of, the stronger this vertical relationship, the greater the love connection that is here is the greater the love connection will be out here. If there's a discrepancy, if there's a fault line here, it's going to come out out here. In other words, if, I, if I'm going to love my wife, and, and I challenge myself with this, I challenge men with this, if I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved the church, how did Christ love the church? He sacrificed himself. He laid his life on the line. He looks out for his bride. Therefore, if I translate that vertical love relationship this way, and I get up every day and thinking, well, how can I love my wife today as Christ loved the church? Then our relationship goes to a whole different level than if I get up the next day and say, I wonder what my wife can do to serve me. I wonder what she can do to help me. I wonder what she can, and do on down the line. You, you see the contrast Paul's getting here? This is not natural for us. We're naturally selfish. We are naturally self-centered. And so this debt we owe to every person is just like the one that God has, has paid for us. So that's the, the debt of love. Then he says, well, what's the motive behind this? What will motivate me to live in such a way that I would love others just as Christ has loved me? And so this is where he picks up in uh, verse 11. He says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In the verse, first part of 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness. And so um, he's saying... And that all of human history, he makes a contrast and a comparison between light and darkness. So to put it in um, a context that we kind of understand, and I put this on your outline, is when Paul talks about darkness, he's talking about the flesh, right? The, the unredeemed part of us that's the uh, fallen predisposition towards self-destruction and foolishness and, you know, pride and emotionalism and... and um, rebellion it's the worst version of you right it's, try, it's trying to live life apart from God and, and when I'm living life apart from God then I, I'm you know the world revolves around me this is the way I grew up everything revolves around me it's all about how I can uh, use others to get my own desires fulfilled and then so that this is this is the way we grew this is the this is the mindset that we began to develop and this is what it means to be conformed to the ways of the world. Because apart from Jesus, this is the way everybody lives, right? We live according to the flesh, the gratification, what's going to make me happy? What's going to bring me fulfillment? What's going to bring me security? 
is totally different than when I'm walking with Jesus. And so that's light dark, or darkness. Light is, you know, I'm living in light of the Spirit. I'm living um, in the, you know, allowing the Holy Spirit to develop character qualities in me called the fruit of the Spirit. So then when I walk with the Spirit, I begin to live in the Spirit. So I thus begin to experience God's transformation on the inside. He's making me a new creation in Christ. And what is the very first word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit? Love. This is the fruit of the Spirit. So I come into relationships with agape love. How can I love others with the love of Christ even if they don't deserve it? How do we respond to people like that? How do we, how do we react towards those who perhaps um, belittled you or said something about you in the workplace and spread rumors about you? How are you going to approach that person? How are you going to interact with them? Well, that depends whether or not I come with the flesh or I come with the spirit. So Paul said in Galatians 5, there's only one two ways to live. I'm either going to live according to the flesh or I'm going to live according to the spirit. And he, he paints a scenario of the outcomes of those two avenues and they're divergently different from one another the natural side of us the broken side of us wants to respond in the flesh the supernatural side of us the god-given side of us wants to respond in the spirit wants to respond with love and joy and peace and patience patience and kindness and gentleness and you know kindness and all of these different ways that are reflected in the life of Christ towards us. And so the flesh is often our first emotional response. And so you get two people in the flesh uh, with one another in a marriage or in any other relationship, it does not end well. All right, this is where fights start, and it's not, you know, now we're arguing with each other, and it's really my thought is not how can I solve this problem and how can we mend this relationship? My thought is, I'm going to make my spouse see it my way and it's going to be my way or the highway or your relationship with people at work or maybe family members or whatever else it might be. You, you Listen, <laughs> because the flesh can't love, you can only love in the spirit. The flesh cannot forgive, you can only forgive in the spirit. The flesh cannot have peace, there's only peace found in the spirit. And so whatever the fruit of the Spirit is, the opposite of that is what the flesh can produce and only produce as opposed to what the Holy Spirit can produce and how you can operate on the basis of what the character that God's building inside of you. So when somebody bumps you and they hurt you, how are you going to respond? Well, if I respond in the flesh, I might get like irate, angry, and just let them have it. Well, um... How does that work for us? Because what happens is we talked about when somebody pushes against you, we want to push back. And when you get two people pushing against one another, and it becomes an all-out fight, an all-out war. And what Paul would say to us, whether or not you're walking in the spirit or you're walking in the flesh, is going to become very evident when somebody bumps up against you because what is on the inside is what will come to the surface. And so if I got seething anger on the inside, maybe because of bitterness and hurt and anger, 
and unforgiveness, and it's just been boiling down there, the volcano, and somebody bumps against me, and I just spew it out all over them. It's not, listen, that person didn't cause your anger. Your anger was already on the inside. They just bumped up against you and revealed what's already down there. They just become the recipient of the shrapnel, right? It's like pulling a pin on a hand grenade. They may have pulled the pin, but you let it explode. So Paul would say, even in love, love, watch this, love is not enabling bad behavior. That's not love. When you confront the person with bad behavior, here's what they typically do. They deflect. Well, I just had a bad day. You know, I, I just, uh, that's just the way it is. That's just who I am. Uh, they'll have a thousand different reasons as to why they, they're living in this bad behavior. And so you have to deal with the hurt. You have to deal with what's going on inside and so the motive for love, he says, is that, listen, regardless of how other people are living, I'm choosing to live in, in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, do we all stumble from time to time and we get fleshly? Absolutely we do. So let's say I get fleshly with somebody and I respond to them in a very curt and you know, disrespectful manner. I dishonor them, disrespect them. What should I do? As a follower of Jesus, I should go to that person and say, you know what? What I said to you was not right. Uh, I said it in a disrespectful way. I was not honoring and loving to you. I'm sorry for what I said, and I'm just asking if you could please forgive me. Right? So that, that's a way that we would build that bridge. So he comes on to say, uh, on to say uh, Paul does, that the time to love is now. So you have to make the most of every opportunity. He keeps talking about time in these, these two verses. And he says, understand the present time. There are two Greek words for time. There is chronos, which refers to like the calendar, or time that was we think of it like seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, you know, weeks, years. You know, that, that's the way we think of time. But kairos is the second word, and it speaks of more of a season. And he says, listen, we are in the season of time in which the world is, will continue to grow in darkness. And this season of time that God has given to us, um, there is a limited amount of time that we have as human beings, as followers of Jesus, to express the love of God into the hearts and the lives of others. So we need to take advantage of the time. We need to Think about the time, speaking of time. I better pull my watch out so I won't know when to stop. So the Bible says, for example, um, I'm, I'll just read to you. You can turn there to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. It says this, um, again, written by the Apostle Paul. For you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 4, it says, but you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be what? Self-controlled. Was that a fruit of the Spirit? Self-controlled. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. 
And so even James would remind us that life is short. So let's just say this table represents your life in the here and now. Here's eternity past. Here's eternity in the future. So the time that God has given to you on planet Earth, whether you die before Jesus comes back or Jesus comes back uh, before you die, the fact of the matter is you have been given one space of time to make a difference in the world in which you and I live in the lives of the people who are around us and the greatest, most powerful force on earth the greatest way I can reach into the heart and the life of any individual is to love them as Christ has loved me. I want to tell you, before I got saved, I was not a real lovable guy. I was angry. I was bitter. I was you know, a lot of things. And I'm not proud of those things. Colossians 4 or 5 says, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. There's only one reason I got saved, because God set his love upon me, and he took a group of people in a church that came into my life, was brought into my life, and they were so patient, so kind, so gracious, and as, no matter what I did, how much I pushed back, they just kept loving me unconditionally, and as a result of that, God softened my heart, and God opened me up to receive the point I could receive God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And the moment I did that, my life forever, forever was changed. So I'm always asking myself, what is the most loving response? What's the most loving action? What is the most loving way I can enter into the realm of this person's life in order to perhaps soften their heart? towards the Lord Jesus. So brings us to the last one, the, the power of love. And the power of love, he says, so, he says, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's darkness and light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, and jealousy. So uh, what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, um, in terms of, you know, he talks about, he uses the word armor. And he taught, he's speaking here in, in terms of warfare. And, th and this is a warfare mentality. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so uh, Satan knows, Satan knows the power of love and the power that love has to bringing people to a point of receptivity of receiving Jesus into their life. And because Satan knows the power of love. It is that which he fights against in the most fiercest manner. Have you ever had somebody in your life and you thought to yourself, you know what, there is no way they're ever going to come to faith in Christ. They're not interested in anything I'm interested in. They're not interested in God. They're not interested in you know, anything about God. And you know, my mother was that way. When I got saved as a teenager and I asked my mom to come to my baptism, she says, you know, I'm great. That's wonderful for you. I don't want anything to do with that. And and she wouldn't come and just hurt my feelings. And um, just so, over the years, man, I just kept praying for my mom. I, I kept loving my mom and, and treated her in, in a, a respectful, honoring manner throughout the course of my life. And as God began to soften her heart and soften her heart, and so God used a multitude of people to help bring her to the doorstep of God's grace. And one of the individuals um, he used was my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law wrote my mother a letter 
And it was when she, after she read that letter, that God just all of a sudden, just like, I mean, just opened up her heart. And as I've shared many times, it was on Mother's Day here in this church that I gave the invitation. I'm staying at the front, and, you know, I'm just finished praying. I look up, and my mom's coming down this aisle to receive Christ, and I had the opportunity and the privilege to baptize her. I never thought my mom would come to faith in, in Jesus. She was 65 years old at that time. Two of the greatest uh, evangelists I had were my daughters. Because my daughters get in the back of the car, my mom be in the front seat, and they go, hey, Grandma, you going to heaven when you die? <laughs> and my mom would say, now, honey, don't you worry about that. It's all worked out. <laughs> and so Paul would say, listen, man, he's saying, if you, if you don't walk in that reality and the love of God, and you, and you don't understand how much God loves you and cares for you, and then you'll begin to displace how powerful love is. So he says that flesh, the flesh is short-sighted, it's impulsive, and he gives three expressions here. He says immediate gratification, orgies, drunkenness. In other words, the flesh says life is all about me, it's all about my pleasures, and it's all about my pleasures now. Like it's not putting it off, there's no self-control, it's just like, I, I want it, and I want it now. Physical gratification, sexual immorality, debauchery. Life is all about physical gratification. It's all about lust, what feels good. You know, where am I going to find my acceptance and my love and my self-satisfaction? People start looking for love in all the wrong places. And then there's personal gratification. Life is all about selfishness. It's all about me. And life is about me and my needs and about my wants and accumulating for myself. This is the life of the flesh. This is the life of everyone apart from Jesus because you have no capability or power in the long run to say no to these things because it's so entrenched in our thought processes. Remember, Paul says, the way you transform your life is through the renewing of your mind. Until your thought process changes, it doesn't change your emotions and it doesn't change your actions. And the only one who can do that for us is through a relationship with Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit begins to transform us. And once I've experienced that transformation on the inside, now every day of my life, the Bible says, get up every day and clothe yourself in Christ. Well, what does that look like? I put this verse down there for you. It looks like Colossians 3, 14 and 15. You know, it's, it's really important how you clothe yourself. And why, here's why you want to put on Jesus every day. Because if I don't, then I will start demanding from others instead of appreciating and loving and serving them. And when they don't meet my demands, I become disappointed in them and I can't react in a loving way. So what does it mean? To clothe yourself, it means to clothe yourself in compassion, Colossians 4 says, being able to relate to somebody's pain and kindness, being concerned for your spouse as much as you are for yourself, and humility, I, I see myself in relationship to God and others. Gentleness, I, will really, I would rather suffer than inflict pain, right? I mean, listen, do you always have to be right in the relationship, or is the relationship more important than being right? Depends on gentleness. 
patience, learning to manage your anger, your woundedness, forgiveness, canceling the debt that somebody owes you. So again, when I clothe myself in Christ as a husband and as a father and as a grandfather, it's always in this relationship with, our, with you here at the church, in this relationship, what is the most loving thing I can do? What's the most loving way I can respond? What's the most loving way that I can interact with you? And so I just kind of wrap this up, and here's three questions you want to ask. Because I know that we get in situations that are so emotionally supercharged. Now, you've been hurt, you have been, you know, mistreated, and your emotions are like through the roof, and you're thinking, well, I, I don't know that I can do this because, man, my emotions are all over the map. Well, number one, you want to acknowledge your emotions. Don't discount your emotions. Your emotions are important, but they're not supposed to be in the driver's seat, okay? You want to acknowledge them, you'll read the book of Psalms. That's David. His emotions are all over the map, and he talks about a lot of different emotions. Number two is you question your emotions, and here's why. Because your emotions are real, but they're not always true. They're real, but not always true. Where do we find truth? In the Word of God. That's where we find truth. So I have to bring my emotions in alignment with God's truth. This is a part of the renewing of the mind, right? I'm bringing the way you think affects the way you feel, which affects your actions. If you're going to change your actions, it all starts right up here. This is the battlefield. This is where it all takes place because our lives are always moving in the direction of our most dominant thinking. So I have to challenge my thoughts and say, is this truth and, and how can I make the switch if it is not? And number Three, express your emotions in the most loving way that you can. And this is where you have to invite the Holy Spirit of God to walk with you in and through this process. I know what it's like to be emotionally charged. You know, you, and I, you know, my wife and I have been very honest about our marriage in the first Many years, we were on the same track, two big eyes in the same family. It was a wreck. It was a train wreck waiting to happen, and it kind of, you know, hit a dead end. We were both emotionally charged, and so the thing that God got a hold of me with, he says, Greg, I want you to love your wife like Christ loved the church every single day. Here's the caveat. I don't care how she responds back. I'm asking you to love her the same way that I've loved you. And then God said to my wife, you need to respect your husband, to which she says, he doesn't deserve it. To which God said, that's not what I ask you. So what happened over the course of time? And every single day since then, how can I love my wife? Do I always get it right? No. But that's the fourth, on the fourth front of my mind. How can I love my wife as Christ loved the church? How can I respect my husband? And so here we are now, 
that was about you know eight to ten years into our marriage. We are 45 years into our marriage. How do we make it that long? Because God began to change and transform our thoughts that transformed our emotions, that transformed our actions, and so that we could respond to each other in the good, bad, and the ugly in a way, in the way of love. In the way of love. That's what God's called for us in the church, outside the walls of the church, with any relationship I have, any person I bump into, if they bump against me, what comes out depends on what's going on in here. So therefore, I have to choose every single day, will I walk in the spirit or will I cave to the flesh? Let's bow our heads together.